Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 205. I'm your host, Chris Webster. My co-host, Paul Zimmerman, is wandering around the desert somewhere. Today, we talked to Andrew Reinhardt and Sarah Zaya about mapping digital landscapes in online worlds. Let's get to it. Welcome to the show, everybody. Paul can't join us today because he is still gallivanting around the desert in Saudi Arabia. I'm pretty convinced he's a spy, and this is just a cover, and I'm trying not to blow it for him, but, you know... We'll see. He just gets called out to the desert uh, on a moment's notice and, you know, does what he does. So hopefully he'll be back uh, at some point and, and we can get onto these shows. I've got a few other articles that I'm waiting on people to confirm for. Uh, there was actually a lot of good stuff in the advances in archaeological practice this time around that just came out in, I think it was, it just came out in June of 2023. And one of those articles is entitled Photogrammetry and GIS in Human Occupied Digital Landscapes, written by Andrew Reinhardt and Sarah Zaya. And we have both of them on the show today. Welcome to the show, Andrew and Sarah. Hi, thank you for having us. Well, thanks for having us. Yeah, so we'll get to both of you in a second and we'll get to the article in a second. But Andrew, I wanted to ask you real quick because some people may know your name from, I mean, multiple episodes of different programs you've been on on the Archaeology Podcast Network. But also you were one of the founding members of the hosts for the Archaeo Gaming Podcast that we had on the APN, which I still want to restart. If anybody's listening to this, that feed is <laughs> still there. If anybody wants to do an Archaeo Gaming Podcast and be the host, just contact me uh, and we'll get that going. But I'm wondering, how have you been in the Archeo gaming space since then? Have you stayed in that space? Is that a primary focus for you? Or is it just a, an interest that you keep coming back to? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It, it's no longer a primary focus, especially since I got the PhD from the University of York back in 2020. Mm-hmm. And so I've got one foot in Archeo gaming and then another foot squarely in, I would say, digital built environments that aren't necessarily games. So basically mm. software and virtual worlds, video games, and stuff like that. Uh, basically, any place that human beings are present and they're leaving evidence of material culture, settlement, and abandonment uh, in a digital space, you'll find me there. So, <laughs> nice. so uh, games is part of that equation. But you know, really, like with this article, this was a pivot from going from strictly video game archaeology into something that could be applied to other kinds of digital things where people you know, quote unquote, live. Okay. So I, I still, I still keep in, keep in touch with my colleagues and friends and everything. Um, I, I, uh, run the, uh, Archeo gaming Mastodon account, uh, since we mm. nuked the Twitter account. Right. And I'm currently a board member for, uh, saving ancient studies Alliance or SASA. Awesome. Sounds good. And Sarah, what brings you to the Archeo gaming sphere? I don't know if this article really belongs in Archeo gaming. It, it, I mean, it does because like you said, Andrew, it's, it's applicable, you know, bringing real world techniques into the digital, the gaming sphere. But Sarah, what brings you to this space before we really get into the article? Uh, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a spatial archaeologist and I just finished my PhD and I'm also a gamer. So I really enjoy um, playing video games and I mostly enjoy the games that have an archaeological background nice. and a flavor. 
I think it, I bring the technical part into the article, but I really, really enjoyed it. It gave me a different perspective of, you know, gaming. And whenever now I play into, you know, I play video games, I kind of look at the space and the traces that I found on a different light. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the article then. Again, this is in the Advances in Archaeological Practice, and we will link to this article. You do need a login to see it because it's part of the um, the SAA, the Society for American Archaeology. But there are typically ways around that <laughs> if you want to get yeah, a copy of the article. This is actually uh, open access. Uh, we oh, got is it? open access paid yeah. for through New York University. So ah, people can look okay. at it. Even though it's on the site, it's totally free to view. Oh, I didn't know that because I logged in to go download it and I didn't even I didn't even notice. So, OK, well, that's good. So we'll link to it anyway and seriously go download it because there's some really good stuff in here, including the references and some some images that will be handy actually as you're listening to this. So look down at your show notes. There'll be a link to the article and you can bring that up while you're listening to the show. Hopefully you're not driving or doing survey <laughs> or anything like that. So, you know, be careful. But All right, so let's get into this. This article that we find out a little bit later in the article is actually part of a a multi-step process that you guys are doing to, you know, to we'll we'll talk about that the 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 other steps. But why don't one of you just explain what this what this step one is and give you know the elevator pitch or abstract version of the the purpose of this article? You know, dealing with digital games and 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 working with uh, digital kind of landscape archaeology, you know. it's really difficult to kind of pinpoint where things are happening. So if, if somebody builds something in a game, if somebody you know puts something up, you know whether it's a fortification or a residence, or they 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 put they put some kind of material evidence of of their visit in a digital space, you know there's no coordinates. You know there's no north. It's some it's mm-hmm. kind of fake north south east west. There's kind of a fakey grid, but there's no GIS because we're dealing with these procedurally generated spaces or designed spaces that are independent of the grid that covers the earth. And so right. I'm like, well, you know, if we're going to do some archaeology, and if we, especially if we want to do landscape archaeology, we probably need to pinpoint where things are happening precisely in the environment. I wonder if we can do that. And so, mm-hmm. you know, knowing full well, I do not have the technical expertise, you know, with, with GIS <laughs> um, and, and, you know, with mapping software, although I play around with QGIS a little bit, or, or working with point clouds or DEMs, digital elevation models. You know, I know the words, but I don't know how to do them. And so I, uh, I reached out back when I had a Twitter, you know, before the hostile takeover there by Musk <laughs> and, and uh, cast around. And Sarah's like, Sure. Yeah. So, uh, Sarah, do you want to you want to fill in where, where what caught your eye and and, uh, and what you brought to the article as well? Sure. Well, since I was um, I think it was a few years ago, I started to get interested in archaeo gaming, and so of course I ran into Andrew's blog website and I started reading, and so his name was like a big name in my head, and so I started following him on Twitter. And then I saw when I was scrolling down his uh, his tweet, and I, I was kind of you know shy at the beginning to reply. So I was like, <laughs> well, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm a PhD student. I'm sure that is a long, long line to work with Andrew. He's not gonna <laughs> listen to me, you know. And then I went back a couple of days after, and I said to myself, well, if you don't try, you will never know. But exactly. the tweet was canceled at that point. Or I couldn't find it anymore. So I think I DM'd you and say, hey, I, I saw your tweet. Do you still need someone to, to do some GIS? 
and that's you know the rest is history nice. i suppose <laughs> yeah, absolutely you know so the the theory was can we make actual usable you know maps you know topographic maps uh, dems you know from point clouds that we gather on these spaces that don't exist on earth and if so, how do we do that? And if we figure out how to do that, we should probably write it up so that other people can do it too. <laughs> All right. So we'll get into your methodology on that probably in the next segment. But first, I want to talk about the games you guys decided to use for this. Now, No Man's Sky and Fortnite are the two games, very different games. And I've actually played No Man's Sky. I haven't played Fortnite, but I, I know of it and, and what it's all about. But I'm curious about the games before we get to why you chose those. I'm curious about the games that didn't make the list, because, again, another game I haven't played, but that first came to mind when you were talking about a like a persistent online world that's that's changed by players is World of Warcraft. It, I feel like it's been around since, I don't know, the late 90s, early 2000s or something like that. I don't even know if it's still around, but that seems like something that has one of the longest histories. Do you know in your research what gaming environment has the longest online continuous history did you find that in your research oh geez i don't know i'll get myself into <laughs> trouble by being you know by, by being wrong um sure but you know be, I'm just be close things like neverwinter nights or everquest yeah and and you know things going back into the 90s you know there's going to be stuff from way way back and you know this includes you know things that's like uh, persistent uh, digital spaces and environments like Second Life and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those places and, you know, they let you craft, but you really can't build. And, you know, so, yeah, we, we could have done WoW, you know, because that's been around, you know, for a very freaking long time. Um, I actually yeah. let my account slip. I, I quit. I rage quit when Mists of Pandaria <laughs> came out because I'm like, you can't change the lore like that. What are you doing? And, you know, I was just a big nerd. <laughs> you know, with WoW, it's proprietary and you've got to pay, you know, in order mm. to do this. In Fortnite's free and No Man's Sky, you still have to pay as well. But it's, yeah, I, I, yeah. I might have given it a moment's thought. You know, I was thinking maybe sure. PUBG or maybe EVE Online or something like that. But, you know, these are the two games that I was really familiar with personally. Yeah, Second Life. I kind of forgot about that. I still have an account. I don't think I've logged into Second Life in years. But <laughs> it's, uh, it's still there. It, every. It's still there. Every time I get a new computer and it's like faster and better, I've got a, I've got the M1 Mac now. I don't have the M2 yet, but every time I get a new one, I'm like, well, let's see how Second Life plays. <laughs> I just, I head over there for a second, see what it looks like, and then I leave and I don't go back until I get a new computer. Yeah, but that uh, let me, let that me, world is crazy. Let me tell you a really quick story. Yeah. And uh, I logged into Second Life a few years ago, and I hadn't been in for about five or six years. Mm-hmm. And I, I used to have a villa in the Roma SPQR sim nice. when I worked for Bolchese Carducci Publishers doing Greek and Latin stuff. And the people I saw five years ago were still there and they were still building <laughs> and they remembered me and they gave me a tour to show me what was new. And it just totally blew wow. my mind. <laughs> wow. I mean, there are, speaking of online worlds, I mean, there are real people that just like, I mean, practically live in Second Life. I don't even know if they're Second Life anymore. It's almost their first life. Yeah. You know what no, I mean? There is, there is. Yeah, yeah. it's a, uh, it's a lot. So, all right. So let's get to No Man's Sky and Fortnite. Why did you guys choose those games to to do your mapping experiment? You know, th- this goes back into you know, like why why do Archeo gaming in the first place? And mm-hmm. the fact that we're using video games as a vernacular for digital spaces. People understand games. They know what games are. They know what they're called. They see them advertised. So if we can start there as kind of a, the low hanging fruit, 
and then we can gently move people towards other digital spaces that are a bit weird. You know, so ultimately, I'd love to do a GIS, you know, survey of Microsoft Word or something. Uh, but that's <laughs> but nobody wants that. You know, they want to see a game. So I was like, okay, fine. You know, we'll, 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 we'll do the game. So Fortnite, you know, is played by tens of millions of players around the world all the freaking time. And the island changes, you know, year to year, season to season. And so it's nice to see those changes and people do kind of the same thing when they go in, you know, they build fortifications to protect themselves and they move around and it's really, really fast. So you can get a really good data set in about 20 minutes. And then Mm. for No Man's Sky, again, wildly popular game played by millions and it's a procedurally generated space. And so we're like, well, can you map a space that's never existed before until you log in? And so, you know, we figured those are two you know, games that people know, a lot of people have played, at least they're familiar with it. And they allow us a couple of different variables to tinker with when we're mapping. Regarding Fortnite, what is the value, do you think? I mean, sure, if it's just a thought experiment, it's can you map a procedurally generated space that doesn't exist after it's been used? Then that's a question, right? And if that's the only question you're asking, then yeah, that's a yes or no question. (laughs) We can do this or we can't. But I'm wondering, like, (laughs) If you can, like, what's the value in that? You know what I mean? With with something that persists and oh, is sure. around for years, let's say, that I can I can really see. But like, you know, Fortnite, the, the world's gone in, what, 20 minutes or something like that, from my understanding? Yeah. What do you yeah. think the, the end value could be there? Or are you not answering that question well, yet? <laughs> this, no, this is... This is the this is the main question, and this is the question that really bugs me as a digital archaeologist, and what keeps me up at night because it gives me nightmares. It's like all of this digital occupation, all of this digital construction, software is coming and going. You know, the, these rounds last twenty minutes and then are gone without a trace. And so, you know, if you're a digital archaeologist and you're not on the ground recording things as they happen, that stuff will be gone. And mm-hmm. so, you know, by by documenting, you know, these very discrete, very fast happenings, we can then build a data set. And I was, I was, I was telling Sarah earlier that, you know, for me, this is, uh, it's a merging of salvage or rapid archaeology with slow data. And we get into Bill Carraher's ideas of slow data and slow archaeology. Same thing with Jeremy Huggett. And mm-hmm. this was kind of a revelation. It's like we have to work really, really fast to collect the data, but then we can take our time afterwards to see what people are actually doing in this limited time that they have. Are they following you know different patterns? How are they interacting with the digital landscape versus a regular one? You know, what kind of community building do they have? What what what's the nature of the architecture of the constructions when they're built under stress? And so, you know, there are all kinds of questions that can be asked, but we we have to be really fast in getting this and in, in getting this information so that we can interpret it later. Okay. Well, that's pretty much the why of this. I really want to get into the how of this. So I think we'll just have a little bit longer of a, of a segment too. And for that, we will take a break right now and come back on the other side and get into how you guys did this back in a minute. Everybody in your crew identifies as either big Mac burger, McNuggets or McCrispy sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. 
That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 205. And we are talking about photogrammetry and GIS in human-occupied digital landscapes. Again, take a look down at your show notes for a link to this article. And we are talking to Andrew and Sarah, the authors of the article. So in the first segment, we talked about a little bit about the why we, anybody would do something like this. But now I want to talk about the how, because this is where I think for our audience in Archaeotech, this really gets to be the interesting part. And we've talked about photogrammetry a lot on this show. We've talked about drones a lot on this show. Any longtime listeners know they have to take a drink now because anytime we say drone, that's what happens. Seems like they come up a lot on this show. <laughs> so hopefully you're listening at a good time. Yeah. <laughs> but so anyway, you mentioned that uh, drones and, and cameras and, and things like that have been used to do photogrammetry for, for many years in archaeology now. And even just saying drones have been used for many years is a, is a pretty powerful statement. It's kind of weird to think that. They yeah. still feel nude in some cases, but they're very much not in other cases. But with photogrammetry, and I've done drone photogrammetry, you really need the... I mean, you don't need, but it's helpful to have the ground control points. And then you've got the, you've got the spatial nature of the, I guess, of the photographs themselves. And I've even done it where you take high resolution video and then chop images out of that. It's not quite as good as taking high resolution images, but you know, we've, we've experimented with that in, in some cases. And I'm just wondering, you know, getting to this, what methodology did you use to get the, let's just call them photographs, really screenshots of the worlds of Fortnite and No Man's Sky in order to be able to do this actual photogrammetry. Because you ran you ran these just like you would any other images through Metashape to produce your DEMs uh, and your 3D models. So I'm just wondering, how did you come up with a way to get these images in, a, in an accurate way uh, to be able to do this? I'll do a very short answer. And then, yeah. and then Sarah, if you could do the detailed answer, because this is when I really started to lean on you. And I was emailing you twice a day, every day for weeks. <laughs> You know, because, you know, I have access to the games and, you know, when you play a video game, every video game is different. Every video game will have its own way of, of maybe doing a photo mode or photo capture, video capture, or you have to do it through the console's native video capture and photo capture software that comes with it. Mm -hmm. And so, that you know, it's like, well, okay, you know, I have these two games. They behave very differently with the photo modes and everything. So what's my camera? How do I use it? Can I fake it out and pretend I have a drone, but it's really not a drone. It's, 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 you know, and like in Fortnite, you actually become the drone. Um, mm. So you have this all seeing eye that you can move around. And then in No Man's Sky, you're dealing with like a sphere. It's like a hemisphere. And, and then your camera's at the top of that. And then you shoot around. And it was a disaster. I was, I'm a terrible drone pilot and a bad <laughs> photographer when it comes to this kind of thing. And so, Sarah, uh, how did you help me? Because you helped a lot. <laughs> yeah, the way that I so I wasn't sure if this was going to work out or not. And the way that I addressed it was as a, any other photogrammetry project that I carried mm -hmm. on in real life. And so I found out that flying the drone and then extracting frames to use as photographs don't really work out. Right. Uh, I prefer to spend a little bit more time in taking the pictures, but then they're going to work out much better in the software. And so I asked Andrew to just take a picture and pause while taking the picture and then move the drone, the virtual drone a little bit forward 
taking care and making sure that the next picture will overlap at least at least 50, 60% with the previous one and just go on and on until he would cover the entire surface that we wanted to do the photogrammetry for. Okay. And there was no no distortion or anything at the edge of the images. I, I mean, in my, in my experience in the past, sometimes they're a little bit fisheye, you know, kind of on those pictures and things like that. Did you guys have any problems? I mean, there's always a distortion, Sure, but it wasn't that bad. Um, if I remember correctly, it wasn't that bad. So it was not like a, a whole 360, you know, that kind of distortion that you see mm-hmm. the parable or anything like that. No. Yeah. We didn't have to fix too much of that. And especially like with Fortnite, there's no curvature of the earth. Oh, sure. It's flat, you know, granted it's got topography, but, but, but yeah. And, you know, shooting from the top down and then moving things around and then making sure we had the overlaps, you know, seemed to have taken care of that. And it was fun to kind of hand the files off to Sarah for her to do her magic and (laughs) whatever she did on, on, on her PC. My magic. That seemed to work out okay. We tried a couple of times and I think the first set of image wasn't working. And, but the second time, like I gave, I guess, more detailed instructions and Andrew was great in taking the pictures and that worked out perfectly. Nice. You know, I'm wondering with Metashape, I mean, obviously a lot of us that are listening to this have put images into Metashape before, but obviously they're usually images of the earth and or objects yeah. and, and things like that. <laughs> Did it just accept these these digital images that uh, that don't necessarily look like you know anything on the earth? It just accepted them and, and did it like normal. Or did you have to use any special settings? No, it actually worked. I was very <laughs> surprised, but I guess these digital spaces are very very accurate, so that they resemble hmm. real spaces, and the software just picked them up. Right. Okay. Yeah. Nice. It was a gamble. You know, this is one of these things. It's like you you ask this what if question and it sounds really crazy, but it's like it's so crazy. It just might work. You know, (laughs) it looks like a mountain. Let's see what happens. And and it did. It did it. No, I was very, very surprised about it because, I mean, I don't know how specifically, you know, the software works. Like I know what I have to do to make it work. But I don't know mm-hmm. what the parameters inside the, you know, the, the algorithm or whatever, how they are set up. So I don't know the tolerance. In my personal experience in, with real world, the tolerance is pretty high more and more with the, you know, the new updates. And so, you know, slight errors that you might have and they would create, would have created issues in the past, like different light uh, you know, if one image is darker than the next one, maybe it won't, you know, match them because the, the RGB values of the two uh, of the pixel, hmm. the same pixel in the two different images is different. And so it doesn't recognize it. But now it's it doesn't even matter anymore. Like if it's not completely off, even if it's slightly different, it still works. Nice. And I really think the the trick here to make it work is to give the software, even if it's a, it's a digital uh, landscape, even if it's a fake mountain, if you give it enough like angles, like if the pictures are taken with the right angles, it will still recreate the shape mm. of the mountain, even if it's not real, real. <laughs> yeah, that took a little bit of doing though. I mean, I had, you, you had me go back and shoot stuff again. Yeah. And let's do that again. 
and try it again. Let's try yeah. it this so, you know, one of the beautiful things about the project is just it, it demonstrates how technology is really iterative and the archaeological mm-hmm. approach or the digital archaeological approach is it's, it's, you take steps and it's like, okay, and you just tweak and you tweak and you tweak and then you finally get it, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I might have asked you to go back and take some mm-hmm. oblique images you to, did. yeah, to kind of uh, <laughs> complete <laughs> the set of the Zenit picture, you know, the one from above, straight from above. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you produce this photogrammetric model and you, you bring it into a GIS and you've got this, well, first off in Metashape, you've got a, you've got a model that has spatial components to it, right? How did you apply units to that? Right. Because I mean, how do you even know right. what the units are in the online world? Right. <laughs> this was the, the big question. <laughs> this was this the funniest was, part. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. It's like, we get to this point and we're like, how many meters is this? Exactly. Well, it's a foot. <laughs> you know? Because you know, this stuff is like totally made up. And so we had to believe that with both of these games, that they were designed for an average sized adult human being. I don't know, you know, less than two meters tall. And let's just go with that. Now in No Man's Sky, they have units which equate to meters. And so you can kind Mm. of do a, and I actually did this, is that you can do a, like a field survey in the game and you can have a starting point. You set a little beacon and then you start at the beacon and you walk into onto the horizon to a point. And when you finish, you can see how far you walked. It's like, oh, okay, that's cool. Right. But not so much in Fortnite. Fortnite, you just kind of had to, had to make it up and take a best guess. So yeah, dealing with units of measure in video games does not really exist. I mean, they have it under, in the underlying code, right? You know, because you have to have mm-hmm. things, you know, make sense when you're doing the design, but they don't really impart that to the public. You know, it's just part of their gaming mandate or whatever. Well, I noticed, I noticed in the article, you read one of the I don't know, one of the updates or additions of Fortnite had Indiana Jones. There's a known quantity. Harrison yes. Ford has a predictable height. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> it, 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 yeah. it, you know, that's one of the wonderful things about archaeology is that it's, you know, all of it's got so much synchronicity. And so, you know, like having Indiana Jones show up while we're doing this project, it was just a godsend. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, yeah, I can't even believe it. You know. It, speaking of distances too, one thing I would wonder, and I don't know if you were able to suss this out or not, because they're like in No Man's Sky, there are some flat plains, but a lot of it's like rolling hills and things like that. That distance measurements back, I'm, I'm familiar with that from, you know, playing this a little while ago. Do you know if that's a linear distance, like line of sight distance from you to the target, or is that taking into account the landscape, the topography? No, it's it's line of sight, kind of as the crow flies, okay. right. distancing. So it's going to be pretty accurate, okay. but not 100% accurate. And I don't know that we would be able to get 100% accuracy, okay. at least not yet anyway, until we figure that out. Right, right. Once you accept that it's going to be an approximation in distance, and, and that was not even, you know, it wasn't the goal of the article to be precise, precise. We just wanted to see if the project was possible or not. But, you know, yeah. once you approximate the distances, we just mark them in a way that I could see them in the pictures. And instead of using coordinates from, I don't know, total station or GPS or whatever that I didn't have, I just scaled the model with those distances and I treated mm-hmm. it as a regular, you know, a regular cloud yeah. point that, I, that needed to be scaled. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. So regarding the online worlds of Fortnite and No Man's Sky, how did you guys decide, really, I guess, Andrew, how did you decide what you were going to map for this that would make a good representation for testing your, th- your guys' theories? Yeah, with Fortnite... You know, we knew that we were doing the project during a season, which meant that the island itself wasn't going to change. Uh, for those of you who don't play Fortnite, you play on a place called Battle Royal Island, which is this kind of crab-shaped island. And every three months, things happen to it. You know, there's a volcano, or then there's an implosion, and the middle of the island goes away, and the climates change, and stuff like that. And so, you know, being able to document it one season and comparing that to the next is always something very interesting. But for for me, I wanted to play over several different rounds because the rounds are always the same. You start, you land as a player on the island, you find out other players to eliminate. And in order to protect yourself, you build things. And so I wanted to go and play a bunch of rounds and then be able to record what people were building and where they were building them. And in relation to other landmarks, other landscape features uh, to each other, to see if we could draw some conclusions, you know, potentially. And so, you know, that was that was pretty easy to do because people just build and you just film the building and then you map it. Now, for No Man's Sky, because it's procedurally generated, you never know quite what you're going to get. So I wanted to find a settlement that was simple. I didn't want to do like a big complex or anything, at least not yet. I just wanted to find something that had a simple structure that was anchored in the landscape. And then I wanted to see if we could, you know, measure it, if we could place it in the landscape and map it. And so I looked at about five or six different candidates. You know, I've got a kind of a gazetteer uh, that I keep because I'm a big <laughs> No Man's Sky head. And so it's like, oh, well, we'll go to this planet and this person lives there. And so, you know, check to see if they're home and they weren't. So, you know, we, we went and we uh, got our uh, video done, got our photos done. Nice. You know, I'm wondering if uh – well, so you guys were going into these worlds and and taking these, you know, just doing this. And I know you, there's a section on ethics in the in the paper there where you talk about, you know, reading the terms of service and being conscious of, you know, the fact that there's other real humans in there and and things that they created and and, and those, along those lines. Plus, also the game designers. I mean, these are proprietary environments <laughs> that, the, that the game designers, yeah. I mean, technically own and can shut down at any point point in time, but they do have provisions within their TOCs to allow for, you know, online play and, and, you know, things like that, which, which made this possible. But I'm wondering, did you guys contact, or do you think you'll contact in the future, the actual game designers themselves? Cause they, I mean, they have all the source material. They have the, they, they have what they know the measurements are. They have, you know, probably, you know, maps of all these areas and, and a lot more information that could ever be gained by one person going in there and doing a study on this. Have you thought about involving them in this anthropological study, so to speak, the bigger picture? Uh, I have. I actually, when when the Archeo Gaming <laughs> book getting close to publication, we needed to get permission for the cover image, which was a screenshot from a procedural world in No Man's Sky. And so it took me about two months to actually get a response from Hello Games. And they actually did. And mm. the, the CEO actually was the one who responded, which really blew me away to give me permission to go ahead and <laughs> use the image. I'm like, wow, this is awesome. They are super busy and like trying to write epic games, you know, to get info about Fortnite. You know, I have a feeling that we'd be signing NDAs out the wazoo and we wouldn't be able to necessarily publish on that, even though we would have the information and, and right. yeah, they don't really have a lot of time for archaeologists. It might be a curiosity, mm-hmm. um, but you know, that's, that's normal. 
you know, because it's a business, you know, for, right. for these AAA games anyway. I mean, for if we were to do more of an indie game or something like that, you know, working with Maps and Season, you know, for example, then we could write and we'd probably get a response and, and actually have a collaboration, which is something that is would be super awesome because it connects the company with the community, with the archaeologists, and then we can do some public archaeology there. Yes. So, Sarah, I don't know if, if you've got experience or if you've tried to reach out to some of these different places that you've been interested in. I tried twice. And once I had a, a very good response, but it was more like, a, as you said, an indie um, production. And they were very interested and thrilled that I used their game and I talked about their games in my research. The other company never even responded to me. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's pretty okay. typical. It's not that they're being rude. It's just they're super busy and yeah. low priority. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. I guess that we will have to make a, to make a compelling case for them <laughs> yeah. to be interested. You know, maybe if Does it, make it can be something for a business, exactly like, you know, uh, Ubisoft opened historical mm-hmm. department for their games and that became like another mm-hmm. business for them. So <laughs> if we can make a similar compelling wow. case, maybe we could start a collaboration. That would be great. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a good point to take a break and we'll come back on the other side and, and talk about a little bit more big picture and next steps for this back in a minute. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh yeah. That's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 205. And we're talking about mapping online environments. And the, the first question for this paper that you guys were trying to answer was basically, can it be done? Is, is this even possible? And to your shock and surprise, it can be done. <laughs> and and <real> t- <laughs> I mean, once you figured it out, it sounds fairly replicatable. And, and I think that uh, this shouldn't be too hard. You're just following those steps to, to reproduce this in, in most environments. So there were three other I guess, future questions, though, that are building off of this one. And I'm just going to go ahead and read those out so we have a frame of reference for this segment. And then we'll talk about that. So point number two is, can the study of human interactive virtual environments contribute to the understanding of past human behavior? Can it contribute to the development of an ABM model? Number three is, how can we preserve temporary evidence of human occupation within a landscape that changes so quickly? And number four, 
Would people behave differently in a virtual landscape than they would in a physical one? Are there any cultural biases in a player agent's behavior or in the developer's choice? So that is the ultimate goal of this project is to essentially answer those four questions. Really, it all comes down to the, you know, it all kind of comes down to the last question, to be honest. I'm wondering, let's just talk big picture. We don't have to break all of those down, but let's just talk really big picture here. And I'm really interested in the, would people behave differently in a virtual landscape? I'm going to go ahead and say probably yes, right off the bat, because normally you don't shoot people in the head on a daily basis. And normally, you know, you're not, you're not behaving the way you are. (laughs) I mean, some people do, but normally, you know, that's uh, that's not really the question though. Okay. The, so, the, the, the question is, will they behave differently in a landscape? And mm. in, in the way I interpreted that question was, you know, there's a mountain in the game. How do we go up the mountain as opposed to behaving badly on the mountain? Ah, right, right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, even then, I mean, a lot of times you can fly, you can teleport, you can do different things because of the game mechanics, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The digital physics are are awesome. And, (laughs) you know, they're either good or bad, depending on on if you're studying them or if you're using them. Yeah. Well, in No Man's Sky, you can just flip over to it. I can't remember what it's called, but you can just tunnel right through the mountain, too. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I'm I'm trying to figure out what is the ultimate value here then, you know, to to study this information. I mean, uh, one of your points is, can we use this to to look at the past? And I, I did like in your article near the end of it, when you were really talking about big picture here, observing what we can see in the visual in the virtual landscape and then having the ability to actually talk to the people who created that ultimately to find out maybe what motivations were, because we can't do that to people in the past. Right. As archaeologists, all we can do is observe the past and you know, make our best guess yeah. based on uh, based on information. But with here, we can observe something yeah. and say, hey, why'd you do that? You know, what's the point there? And and try to apply that to something in the past. Do you think that's still possible with the, like you said, the massive digital physics of the online world and, and how different it is? I, I think so. Yeah, I hate to say the real world. In the physical world, I guess, yeah. um, you can talk to descendant communities and they can tell you things that have been passed down or they can give you the interpretations of the landscapes in which they live that have that exhibit features from antiquity however however you know soon or long ago that was with the digital games you know you can certainly engage with the player community you know as long as you identify yourself and what you're doing and get permission and all of that and behave in an ethical way and this happened with the no man's sky archaeological project where you know you would talk to people who were like day one players and they would be building and stuff and they would tell you how it was like and then you might talk to people who joined the game two or three years later and Mm. they don't have that initial lived experience they have a history because they have a wiki and a reddit and stuff like that and then you know they hang out with some of the old timers you know but that's only been three years but you know in a game that's that's ancient history and so, you know, being able to document in the beginning and then dipping your toe back in the water, you know, after a year, after six months or something is always great because things are changing at such an advanced rate. You know, we're not looking at big data. You know, we're looking at little data, you know, as, as Jeremy Huggett says. And, you know, when you, but when, you, when you put it all together, you're able to create this historical picture, granted one that's been, you know, created in real time over just a few years as opposed to eons. Hmm. Interesting. Do you think that, uh, and this is a question for both of you, I guess, you know, when you start documenting stuff like this, you know, you start getting these landscapes documented, you start making, you know, 
doing other studies based on those models because you know usually the first step in any archaeological project is mapping right so this is how we're approaching this and once you once you start documenting this world and you start making it I don't know. You, st- you start putting it into the archaeological record, so to speak. It's not even so to speak. This really is the archaeological record. It's just the digital archaeological record. Do you think there will be a time or it, do you know if anybody's thinking about protecting some of these worlds? You know, we have the National Register of Historic Places. And one of the things that is important for the criteria on the NRH- NRHP is not only data, so important things about humans, but architectural things, you know, unique architecture, unique people and and unique events, right? Those are basically the the four criteria. Well, these online worlds are important for as you mentioned in the case of Fortnite, I mean, literally hundreds of millions of people, right? And you look at the whole gaming community and it's and it's billions of people. So these are really important things where really important things are happening that are shaping people's lives in the in the physical world in some cases, you know, whether it be success through their, you know, through, you know, e-gaming and things like that or other things. Do you think there's any validity here for protection of these worlds in the future? And and I'm wondering if the developers would fight that <laughs> and how that would actually look if the government tried to take yeah, over um, No Man's Sky. I have a quick answer. And then, Sarah, the uh, I always thought like the Internet Archive should be a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Hmm. It ticks all the boxes for UNESCO World Heritage Site, albeit for it's sure. a digital space. And yeah. whenever the United States decides to rejoin UNESCO, because I don't think they have yet, hmm. then we'll be able to nominate the Internet Archive for that. You know, they're, they're actually physical monuments. There's there's one that was built in Iceland to commemorate something from EVE Online. And then there are in-game memorials, like Make-A-Wish stuff in various games like WoW, for example, where, mm-hmm. you know, you have these permanent spaces that the developers put in, you know, to honor something or to honor an event. And then you've also got commemorative blogs and wikis for all kinds of stuff. And there's actually a history of memorial building in No Man's Sky, you know, people building things in honor of family members, you know, with the understanding that these will persist at least for a while. Sure. And so, yeah, I, I think that you know, some kind of designation would be great. And, you know, why not Azeroth, <laughs> you know, as a protected <laughs> space? I don't know. I mean, they had to bring back the vanilla server due mm-hmm. to popular demand. And so, you know, that just seems to be a case in point of what people want and need and they want to revisit and have nostalgia and all that stuff. Um, Sarah? Yeah, I think it, they should be protected and preserved. I think my mind is going just off to how, because the data would be so massive. Right. And as we mentioned before, the landscape changes so fast that I'm not sure how we could practically do it. So I'm thinking about, you know, the practical. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and like, if I, if I would to record this, like I can fly drones all the time on top of people buildings and, you know, try to collect everything. So I don't know what the practical way uh, to do it. The best one will be. But I think it should like uh, yeah, for b- just, you know, I, I think it would be very important because they are a manifestation of people's behavior. And so for anthropological and archaeological studies, they, they should definitely be recorded. Well, these these worlds, too, they almost sort of as an analogy, follow the Heisenberg uncertainty principle where they don't really exist until you're observing them, right? They're just ones and zeros in a hard drive (laughs) until you're in there. So, so what does preservation even look like? Does it have to be preserved? So, so anybody 
can enter the world through some sort of portal, like a like a video game machine or something like that? Or do they need to be preserved so way people you know aren't in that world can see? They're like they're looking at yeah. the world through a through a TV screen, you know? Yeah, that's yeah. that's been one of my goals when I was doing my PhD. You know, that was part of one of the case studies is. What's the lowest common denominator of access that we can provide mm. so people can see what it is that we're talking about? You know, so it could be just stereometric $5 goggles, you know, <laughs> and you've got a split screen that you're watching on YouTube or something. And for some folks, that'll be enough. And it records the audio. It, granted, it's yeah. a guided tour. You know, you're not able to look around. And I've tried and failed to do like a 360 VR inside a video game where we could do, you know, go where you want kind of stuff without actually having to use the game. So, you know, that's, that's important. And you're right. You know, a lot of these games, especially the procedural ones, they don't generate until you arrive. And then you have interfered with the, with the space, even though the space is brand new. And what does that mean ethically? It's <laughs> like, I, I don't know. And then you're also right in that the archaeologists are actually the leaders in creating the digital archaeological record, you know, hats off to TDAR, but you know, where there is no archaeological record until we show up and all of a sudden there is one. And so what does that right. mean, you know, for ethics and, and, and for what it is that we're communicating? And if we go there first and people follow us, what have we done? It's weird. <laughs> right. It's like Doctor Who or something. It's weird. <laughs> so or Black Mirror. Yeah. I know, right? We've only got a few minutes left in this episode. So where are you guys with number two? I'm talking about the study of human interactive virtual environment contributing to the understanding of past human behavior. Are you guys in, in process on, on doing some research on this? No. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Short and simple. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not. I, uh, I've got two books that I'm revising for Bergheim. Yes. Ba basically, what we wanted to do is to create this methodology of digital space specifically for people to play around with agent-based modeling. Here's a landscape. Here's how you can map it. You can put your agents in there and it doesn't have to be a game. It can be a digitally created space, you know, that you put in parameters or different rules to make it look a certain way or behave a certain way. And then you let your agents run around and do stuff. And then you can tweak that and see what happens. Our methodology allows you to do that with the spaces that you create digitally in support of your ABM work, which is the real mm -hmm. goal. Now, I haven't, uh, and Sarah, I don't know if you have, I haven't tried that yet with ABMs. I'm hoping maybe Sean Graham might, if you're listening, or Stephanie <laughs> Crabtree, you know, moving forward. So we got a couple minutes left. Let me get your guys' final thoughts on this, on what you want people to get out of this paper and, and moving forward. We'll start with you, Sarah. Yeah, I think it would... I would like the people to get what I got out of it. And so start thinking about video games and digital spaces, whether they are now fixed or generated as places not where to play and have fun, but like thinking about, you know, as a as world where you start living it and when you, you know, your action kind of have consequences for you, the, the landscape, the environment that you're in and also for other players. So to start thinking how you interact with the things and the people that you meet in the digital space on top of just having fun and playing the game by itself. And so be more aware that that is still creating archaeological record for other people eventually in the future, possibly to look at and, um, and study. Okay. Andrew? 
For, for me, the, the main goal was to demonstrate that even though digital landscapes are a relatively new medium, an archaeological medium, that you don't have to really change all that much what you do as an archaeologist and the tools that you use. If you're using drones, if you're using you know, modeling software, if you're using GIS software, you can still follow those steps and still use those materials in digital spaces as well as in terrestrial ones. And so, you know, that was really one of the overarching goals for me is to demonstrate that you don't have to be a gamer in order to participate in doing this kind of digital archaeology, especially archaeology that's done in a digital space. Sure. Okay. Well, that's about all the time we have. Thanks guys for coming on. I hope that when you continue this research in the future, we can bring you guys back on to to have a follow-up discussion. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thank you for yeah. having us. Thanks again. Bye-bye. All right. And we'll see everybody else next time. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Come.